Let me just tell you in a few words a little bit about this Bible study so you have a general idea for first-year students what this is all about. Um, actually, uh, my wife and I had a Bible study for medical students in our home starting in 2003. And it took us two years and we went through the Bible with students and that was really, I would say, the I ideal environment because it was Friday evenings and um, we could talk and have conversation and you could ask your questions and that was a very enjoyable experience. We moved into this amphitheater in 2005. So we had another trip through the Bible uh, from 2005 to 2007 and then from 2007 to 2009 and then our last trip took four years. So this is um, our fifth trip through the Bible and I've kind of toyed with doing things differently and I haven't decided what to do entirely with this year. I kind of thought about maybe doing the whole Bible in one year to get a big picture overview um, and I'm still not sure how this is going to turn out. But we'll see. We're going to start at the beginning. We'll spend certainly a great part of this year on the Old Testament. Okay. And I think most of you are aware that um, you can find the um, audio and the PowerPoint slide. Usually I'll put it up on a website, godscharacter.com, which kind of gives you an idea of the focus of this Bible study. All right, so um, as we begin, let's pray. Dear Father, I pray that for each person here that your spirit would be active within our hearts and minds, that we can direct our thoughts toward you during this time. And for this year, certainly each person here has a slightly different perspective um, on you. And none of us see you perfectly clear and have a 100% um, authority on truth. So we just ask that as we grapple with the story this year that you would uh, lead us in a direction uh, that is uh, closer to the reality of who you are. Amen. Okay, so I guess if I were giving a title to this lecture, I would call it something like um, The Ideal. And the reason I thought we'd better start there is we're going through the Old Testament, which has some of the most difficult and challenging and violent stories. And so I think maybe I would just try to make a claim up front about something about the nature and the character of God, and then we'll go through uh, the stories. So it's kind of like medical school, right? First year, emphasis is the normal, how the kidney normally works, how the brain normally works, the normal physiology. And then the second year, you get into what happens when it goes wrong. Okay, so this is one lecture when uh, we're going to uh, focus a little bit more on the, how things should be and perhaps how things should be from God's perspective, and we'll grapple with that a little bit, because the Old Testament is full of pathology, deep pathology. Pathology on the part of the individuals in the Bible, of course, but don't we all struggle with some of these stories and what they say about God in the Old Testament? So we're going to go through these and kind of grapple with, with the meaning. Yeah, so there's a patient with a uh, stroke, and you can see a bunch of little lacuna strokes as well. <coughs> So I just want you to think about a little bit, and, and uh, by the way, if, if you have a question, feel free to raise your hand. This doesn't need to be a lecture, so if there's something that comes up and you want to make a point, um, just let me know. But what I want you to think about here a little bit is, does the Bible describe a time before the rebellion? Even those first few verses of Genesis, as we'll talk about next time, there is implied in there that not everything was wonderful in the universe uh, when our world was created. You know, what's that serpent doing in the tree? Okay, can we, can we imagine, can we take things back before the creation of our planet and humanity? And can we take things back even further before the creation of the angelic 
realm. Okay, we don't have a book in the Bible that describes all this in detail, but I just want you to imagine, I mean, if God is eternal, then there was an eternity before the creation of, of anything. And what can we imagine about that period of time? What was that like? Certainly, I'd have to say maybe that would be ideal, right? There was no rebellion. What was it like? So Genesis opens up in the beginning God, and the expansion of this, interesting in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So if we just put some little dot, dot, dot here, uh, what this really, we could say, I think accurately, that in the beginning, God was with God. So there was some kind of a, a relationship that was taking place before the creation of our world. What does that look like? Just some interesting little bits um, here and there throughout Scripture. Jesus said in, in the end of his ministry, Father, I want them to see my glory, which you gave me because you loved me before the world was made. So we see this description here of a, of a loving relationship between Father and Son before anything happened here on this planet. So we're talking about the Trinity a little bit. What do we know about Father, Son, Holy Spirit, how they relate to each other? Certainly you'd have to say this would be an ideal relationship. And can we piece this together in Scripture? So we have the Father, of course, at the, at the baptism of Jesus. We have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all involved there. Here we have the Father saying, You are my own dear Son. I am pleased with you. And Jesus um, again, in John, this, the same passage we mentioned earlier, would say about the Father, you are in me and I am in you. Okay, that, that's a relationship as, as close as you could make it. And then the Father would say um, about the Son, for this reason God raised him to the highest place above and gave him the name that is greater than any other name. So the Son is given a name that is greater than any other name. So it seems kind of interesting here, the, some of the reflections here between relationship between father and son. Okay, and about the son, Jesus said many times, this is just one representative passage, if you knew me, you would know my father also. Okay, Jesus didn't walk around saying, you know, hey everyone, I'm God in human form, I'm God. Instead, he spent all of his time saying, uh, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. He seemed to be completely deflecting everything, all attention toward the Father. Okay, and then a longer passage here in the upper room. Again, if you know me, you will know my Father also. And this is interesting. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip, I'm so glad he asked this question, said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. And it almost seems to me he's saying... You know that God of the Old Testament who did all those things. Can we see him? And Jesus' answer is, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So this incredible oneness between Father and Son. And again, Jesus uh, doesn't seem to be telling us about himself so much as he's saying, if you've seen me, look at the Father. What you see in me is what you see in the Father. Okay, so in John 12, Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. And this has some in interesting implications. Um, 
You know, Jesus would say of himself, I am meek and lowly, or gentle and humble. Okay, and we're pretty accepting taking that about Jesus. Uh, Can we say the same about the Father? If the Son is gentle and humble, and if Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, can we make the same claim about the Father as well? Or Or is there a difference in character between the two? Well, what about the Holy Spirit? don't have as much about the Holy Spirit, but it's interesting what the Holy Spirit is doing many, many, many times. This, this is the function of the Spirit. He is the Spirit who reveals the truth about God. Okay, more than a dozen times he reveals the truth about God. And in John 16, Jesus said, when however the Spirit comes, again, what does he do? Who reveals the truth about God? He will lead you into all the truth. He will give me glory because he will take what I say and tell it to you. So, the Holy Spirit, like the other two members of the Trinity, doesn't seem to be directing attention to himself, but he's directing us to God by bringing Jesus to us. He reveals the truth about Jesus, who is a reflection of God. So, it's just, if if we're making a triangle here between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it seems that the Father puts the Son as a name higher than any other name. Uh, The Son deflects praise. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Look at the Father. And the Holy Spirit seems to be telling us the truth about God, Father, and Son. So each of them seem to be pointing away from self and toward the other. It's it's kind of an interesting relationship. So I guess if we could just say, based on that about the Trinity, that there seems to be an other-centered kind of a nature in the way the Trinity relates to each other. Each is deflecting praise and glory and pointing to the other. And I think we could, this description of a relationship and intimacy, you know, the, the way you loved me before the creation of the world, that there was a deep relationship and intimacy in, is involved in the Trinity, and certainly that is based on trust and mutual love. So I think we see an ideal in terms of relationships in uh, what the Bible describes among the relationship between the three members of the Godhead. So we all know the, the famous verse here, God is love, What is very interesting is to read the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 and substitute God for love in there. Can you do that? Well, in in the context of what we're talking about here, love does not sing its own praises. And it kind of seems like, again, in this Trinity relationship, God is not singing his own praise. He's deflecting to the other members. Love is, this is the core here, something that love is not. Love is not selfish. Love is not self-centered. And again, in the Trinity, we see the other-centered focus of uh, their relationship. Okay, so on the topic here, I really like this quote about the Trinity. Again, we're talking about the ideal today, because the whole rest of the year is going to be about the problem. And so this this quote about the Trinity, at the root of all present-day oppressive dictatorships, divided or monochrome societies, devaluation of certain individuals, and the inability to cultivate loving community is a denial of the Trinity. That's what the Trinity is all about. The Trinity models an image of mutuality, reciprocity, and totally shared life. So that is the ideal, and I think that's an ideal for us to to strive for. So uh, I think what we see, though, and the point that I'm trying to make in, in this is that the ideal for humanity is to ultimately come into that same kind of relationship uh, with each other and with God, that we are invited into that kind of a a loving, other-centered relationship. The end of the Bible, of course, describes a wedding, right? 
I saw the holy city. Of course, these are symbols. New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, dressed like a bride, ready for her husband. So there's a marriage at the end of the Bible. Again, the, the intimacy, the relationship, that, that ideal. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, God lives with humans. God will make his home with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There won't be any more death. There won't be any grief, crying, or pain, because the first things have disappeared. And then, without the why there, they will see his face. There's such a deep meaning to that. I mean, that, that is describing intimacy, isn't it? A face-to-face -face kind of a relationship with God in the end. And his name or his character will be written on their foreheads. Okay, so that is the ideal for us as well. And just as we think about the creation, next week we'll talk about the, the creation story, but I think we see the ideal um, in the creation account as well. And this is a quote from a book, The Ideal for Humanity, and I've summarized this here, here as a question, a world made for romance. Well, what do you think about this? Imagine the most beautiful scenes you've ever known on this earth. Rainforests, the prairie in full bloom, storm clouds over the African savanna, the Alps under a wintry, winter snow, then imagine it all on the day it was born. Into this world, God opens his hand, and the animals spring forth. Myriads of birds in every shape and size and song take wing. Hawks, herons, warblers, all the creatures of the sea leap into it. Whales, dolphins, fish of a thousand colors and designs. Thundering across the plains race immense herds of horses, gazelles, buffalo, running like the wind. It is more astonishing than we could possibly imagine. No wonder the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. A great hurrah goes up from the heavens. We have grown dull toward this world in which we live. We have forgotten that it is not normal or scientific in any sense of the word. It is fantastic. It is a fairy tale through and through. Really now, elephants, caterpillars, snow? At what point did you lose your wonder of it all? Even so, once in a while, something will come along and shock us right out of our dullness and resignation. We come round a corner, and there before us is a cricket, a peacock, a stag with horns as big as he. Perhaps we come upon a waterfall. The clouds have made a rainbow in a circle around the sun, or a mouse scampers across the counter, pauses for a moment to twitch his whiskers at you, and disappears into the cupboard. And for a moment, we realize we were born into a world astonishing as any fairy tale, a world made for romance. And I would recommend this book by John Eldridge. Uh, describing the creation as something that was to, I mean, we were not just made to be independent of God living down here and doing things, but this was made for the purpose of some kind of a very intimate relationship, and we see that in all the beautiful things um, of nature. Okay, one more quote, and then we'll, we'll go on a little bit. This is from uh, a book I'd recommend by Sigby Tonstead, who's in the religion department here, and he describes at the end of creation, then we have the, the Sabbath day, and he makes this point about this kind of relationship seen in the, the seventh day, which I like. So he said, the relational implication of the seventh day is often overlooked, dwarfed by the tendency to prioritize God's power, sovereignty, and majesty as more representative features of creation. Power and sovereignty are attributes of God, but from God's side, it is not power that is projected most forcefully in the institution of the seventh day. When God ceases the work of creating, hallowing the seventh day, we see God coming into an enduring relationship 
with creation. And again, God entering into a 24-7 time cycle, I mean, that is, has nothing to do with humans. That is God coming close. By resting on the seventh day, God is thereby shown to have entered into the time of the created order. Intimacy threatens to eclipse majesty in this scenario. At the very least, we are led to see God's desire for intimacy in the seventh day to the point that God's awesome power and majesty are veiled and held in the background so as not to intimidate human approach. Perceiving the seventh day as a relational marker enriches the theology of creation, promising to rectify the distortion in which the emphasis on sovereignty implies detachment. Karl Barth writes perceptively that the characteristic of God, and this is probably the most influential um, theologian of the 20th century, that is revealed in the rest of the seventh day is his love. The reason why he refrains from further activity on the seventh day is that he has found the object of his love and has no need for any further works. It is as if we hear God speaking, I am ceasing on the seventh day not only that you may acknowledge and love me, but in order to make it known that I recognize and love you. So again, we're talking about the ideal, and I think we see all of that coming to fruition there at the end of uh, creation. Okay, so we, see, we do see the ideal in nature, even today. Obviously, uh, a lot has changed. But, um, you know, I was thinking, uh, I heard a story recently about an acorn tree, and a farmer counted... 72,500 acorns in a tree, one year. And I guess over the course of a life of an acorn tree, it may produce as many as 14 million acorns. And so it's pretty incredible. In some ways, nature, of course, is beautiful, and that abundance is quite remarkable. Um, the other thing I would just say as a reflection of the ideal is the family unit. And again, we think about that father-son, Holy Spirit relationship. Uh, well, two parents come together in love and have a little one created in their own image. Okay, and what do you do when you have a baby? Probably not many of you have had uh, children here, but you serve those little ones. I mean, they're completely dependent on you for everything. Okay, and it's, it's obviously tough for a while, but these kids grow up and eventually parents get old and then children ideally serve their parents and take care of them in their um, old age. So. Uh, ideally, in the family, we see a similar kind of uh, ideal structure of this relationship and intimacy. But, obviously, the ideal uh, has been lost. And so, what do we see in nature? I chose this picture of a python um, here consuming some sort of, um, I don't know, gazelle or something. And what do we see in nature now? We see the opposite of that, right? Survival of the fittest. Okay, where instead of this giving, serving, other-centered kind of um, relationship, now we have the stronger tracking down, hunting, and killing the weaker. Okay, and I think I wanted to mention the ideal just to say when we see this, this is not the ideal. This is not the way God established the universe to operate. But that's the way it is. So something has happened in this rebellion that has entirely shifted the, the normal ways that things should work. Okay? And the ideal is lost in other ways. Um, many are troubled by God's apparent inaction in the horrible things we see in our world. Obviously, the Holocaust, one of the, you know, probably the, the worst, I wanted to point to one thing in the last hundred years. God's inaction in that setting. Um, this is one of our biggest subjects, probably we'll talk about as we go through um, the Old Testament. 
Um, things like 9-11, and people wonder, why couldn't God intervene in some way? Um, you know, children that are starving. Um, I just found on Google a picture of uh, someone, a drunk driver, who killed a little girl. Um, can't God intervene in some of those? Isn't that one of the biggest things that tends to cause distrust and to cause people to believe that it all can't be true if we have these things going on and God doesn't intervene? And we'll have a lot of stories in the Old Testament where we'll have a chance to bring up this subject um, in Judges, the Levite and the concubine, the woman who was raped all night and then left for dead and then cut into 12 pieces and distributed throughout the 12 tribes of Israel. Probably one of the worst stories in the entire Bible. God's inaction. We want to struggle with that. Why doesn't God act sometimes when we think he should? And on the opposite spectrum, and probably even more challenging here in the Old Testament, is God's apparent actions. Okay? I'm very grateful for this little book, um, The Brick Bible, which um, I think we were in Costco four or five years ago, and my son picked it up. And uh, this was... Uh, I have one son that's an avid reader, and the other just somehow books for him are just, you know, terrible. So he found this book, and he just really got into it, poured over it. And I've always told medical students that every child book just coats over the hard parts. You know, it, it, you know God is just wonderful through the Old Testament. There's not one challenging story. Um, well, this is one that doesn't do that. And you should really look through if you get a chance to pick up a brick Bible. This is very controversial. It was pulled off the shelves in Sam's Club because parents complained it was too mature for their children. Um, but you really see it all. Nothing is left out. Blood everywhere. Uh, here's, uh, here's the flood. <laughs> and it's uh, very, very creative. Um, but every difficult story in the Old Testament, God sending flood, God sending fire, the commands for genocide, all of these things, they're all there. And again, for children reading this, it's, it's quite shocking. Um, our son actually woke us up in the middle of the night because he couldn't sleep because of Jesus' words. There's a New Testament version also, uh, but Jesus' words that you must hate your mother and father uh, to be a part of my kingdom. And, and that was really you know, bothering him. So we had a conversation about oriental hyperbole in the middle of the night. But anyway, here's the, the flood. Here's always been my example of how the kids' books leave out the most gruesome part. The Goliath was killed by rather a large rock there, but anyway, it's, uh, um, that's the best you can do, I guess, here with uh, Legos. But um, in the Brick Bible, they actually include the decapitation. You know, David cuts his head off, and you see it there in the Brick Bible. And, you know, praise the Lord. And do, do we, what do we do with these stories? You know, are we happy that David cut, cut his head off? Um, well, these are some stories we're going to talk about. God's actions, some of them in the Old Testament. So that's for the next several months. Now, um, so skipping over all of that, I think I want to describe a little bit how does God bring back the ideal. And again, coming back a little bit to this relationship, I'm just fascinated by the little bits here about father and son. Here is something uh, you could say is prophetic in Zechariah. Um, kind of contemplating this separation between father and son. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is, an interesting word here, my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Or this can be translated as the one who is my friend or the one who is close to me. So um, something 
describing something that will happen as this, this kind of a separation. Of course, Jesus on the cross, why have you forsaken me? Okay, we'll talk a lot even this year about what that means and how that is important in restoring the ideal. Okay, Jesus came, and it's pretty clear, especially you read the Gospel of John, the mission. Okay, no one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. So the mission here of the Son condescending to become human is to reveal God, to make him known. Okay, and probably my favorite verse that we'll talk about many times. I just find it fascinating. Eternal life is this. This is eternal life. Now, if you had to write down the conclusion, what is eternal life? Well, I probably would have written living forever. But that's not how the Bible describes eternal life. It describes it in terms of a, of a quality of relationship. Eternal life is this, to know you. And to know through the Bible is such a redundant theme. Adam knew Eve, and they had a son. It's describing, again, it's, it's an intimacy. So to know in the Bible, and to equate that with eternal life, is describing that really what eternal life is about is the quality of our relationship with God. Eternal life is this, to know you, the only true God. Now, how do we know the only true God? Well, through Jesus Christ. I have shown your glory on earth. Okay, again, that wasn't a, a physical brightness. I have finished the work you gave me to do. Okay, if you had to even put it in the singular, the work. Okay, what work did Jesus come to do? I revealed your name, and I think the Message Bible gets it right here, that name is character in the Bible. It encompasses more than the name of the individual. It's everything about the person. It's the character. I revealed your character. So the mission of Jesus, somehow, to make all this right, is a revelation of God, a revelation of who God is, a revelation of God's character, and somehow that is to bring everything back into order again. Okay, just on the concept of to know, uh, we could go through so many things. I'll just point out a few, just to say that it does go through the whole Bible. What's the problem in Hosea? My people are being destroyed because they don't know me. Okay, again, that's, that's a very deep meaning. It's not that they necessarily don't know doctrines, but they don't know me. This certainly is not a, a trusting, loving relationship. And Jesus three times told this parable about the second coming, and in the end, it always seemed rather cold uh, hearing this as a child, that God would say, go away, I never knew you. Okay, doesn't he know the hair on our heads, right? Everyone, good and bad. But the meaning here is to know throughout the Bible. Okay, so when it really comes to the end, what goes wrong for some people? Well, they don't know God in that intimate, relational sense. Okay, that certainly would seem to be very important. So, Jesus would say, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So, our, um, I would say our ideal relationship with God here is described by Jesus as not the master-servants. Now, we are God's servant, of course, that doesn't uh, negate that, but it would seem that Jesus is calling us to something much greater, actually be friends of God. It could almost sound blasphemous to say that, but he has called us friends. Okay, and finally, one more in John 17. I pray that they may all be one. Father, may they be in us, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they be one, 
so that the world will believe you sent me. So this is, uh, I would say, a very deep verse here. May they be one. Remember, we described the oneness of the Trinity. And it's not only Father and Son, Holy Spirit in Father and Son, but that we also may be in that Trinity, that we are actually to be incorporated into that wonderful experience. And that Jesus would say this, uh, just almost the last things that he said before he died. So, uh, Jesus so much contrasts. I mean, we know survival of the fittest. It's not just in nature. It's everywhere. I mean, every kingdom of the world is based on survival of the fittest. Um, every institution, it's, it's top down. That's the way our world operates. Okay, and Jesus would come and say, this is not the way it is in my kingdom. And this story I find so interesting here, that the mother of James and John came to Jesus with her two sons. She knelt down and started begging him to do something for her. And Jesus asked her what she wanted. And she said, when you come into your kingdom, please let one of my sons sit at your right side and the other at your left. And um, just as a side note, one of the good evidence that you can make for the, the New Testament and the Gospels being a credible account is how many embarrassing things there are from the disciples' perspective. In legendary accounts, you know, the followers of the hero always look good themselves. And the disciples look like fools very often. I mean, you wouldn't be very happy if in the Bible it's recorded that uh, your mom came and asked if you could sit at Jesus' right side, right? It's a little embarrassing. Okay, and for Peter, it's obviously much worse than that. Okay, but, but this is the kingdom of the world, right? Can they be at the top? Can they be a ruler and command other people below them? That's kind of, you know, a survival of the fittest kind of a thing. And Jesus answered, not one of you knows what you are asking. And when the other disciples heard this, they were angry because, of course, they wanted to be at the top also. So there's competition. Okay, now listen to Jesus' description. This is the way it's supposed to be. You know that foreign rulers like to order their people around. Again, that's top-down, survival of the fittest. And their great leaders have full power over everyone they rule, but don't act like them. If you want to be great, now here we give this description of God's kingdom. If you want to be great, you must be the servant of all the others. And if you want to be first, you must be the slave of the rest. Okay, and again, what's remarkable about God is this is not just a command, but that we have God coming in human form saying that the Son of Man did not come to be a slave master, but a slave who will give his life to rescue many people. So Jesus is our example. And um, the medical profession is just such a great way to model um, this kind of service. Yes, you're a physician, you're trained, um, highly trained, but you can very much take on the nature of a servant by the way that you treat patients and staff and so on. So we can, we can absolutely fit into this ideal kind of a kingdom. So, Jesus commands, I give you a new command, love one another. We've never heard that in the Bible until John 13. Okay, in 2 John, let us all love one another. This is no new command I'm writing to you. It's just that no one's ever done it, really. But it is the command which we have had from the beginning. Could we say even the very, very beginning? So, our one command as Christians is to live in this kind of a loving, serving relationship. And uh, so many times in the New Testament, I'll just give a couple examples here in the writings of Paul. In Philippians, don't do anything from selfish ambition. Remember, that's the opposite of the other-centered uh, relationship. Or from a cheap desire to boast, but be humble toward one another, always considering others better than yourselves. Now, isn't that... I can't even honestly imagine 
relating to everyone else and considering. I don't think this means you have a low opinion of yourself, but it has something to do with the attitude that you have towards others. And look out for one another's interests, not just for your own. And then in Romans, in brotherly love, let your feelings of deep affection for one another come to expression and regard others as more important than yourself. Isn't that, again, that same kind of a a Trinitarian uh, relationship there? That's the ideal. Well, finally, just we take in the the scope here of, of human history. I think there's one time that we would have to say that that kind of a kingdom was really on the earth. It really was lived out. And that is in the early Christian church. You know, you read the description about how no one had any need. They gave uh, what was needed for others. And of course, what happened? Uh, that's when the Christian church just took off. And I think it was because finally that kind of uh, a loving, other-centered kind of a kingdom was on the earth. Okay? And when uh, I think Paul and Barnabas had arrived in a town, their reputation preceded them. And it was said about them in Acts that these men who have turned the world upside down have arrived in our town. So I think uh, some sad things have happened with the history of the Christian church. When we get to Constantine, it stopped becoming this other-centered kind of a kingdom and became, you know, evangelism was was with the sword. And we're resorting back to the top-down kind of a way of running things. But as much as we could replicate this experience of the early Christian church, um, I think we'd see great things again, happening for the kingdom. All right, so if you want to read on a little bit, um, we're going to go through the creation account, so maybe read the first um, four or five chapters of Genesis would be great for next week. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much that um, in, in so much of the Bible we do see the ideal and we see the way that uh, you relate to your son and the other-centered way you've uh, related to us, condescending so much. And we just ask that we would better see that ideal and live that out in our own lives. Amen.